Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to begin at verse 13. As we come to Galatians chapter 5 this morning, we remember that Paul has been emphasizing the point over and over again that our standing with God is on the basis of what Jesus has done for us, not on the basis of what we have done or are doing or promise to do for God. Now, this is a wonderful, liberating truth. But to be very honest about it, it has some problems with it. And the problem is simply this. It makes people wonder if grace and forgiveness and salvation are not cheap. If people won't abuse it. Here you have somebody who is a notorious sinner his whole life, abusive to himself and to others and to society as a whole. And are you trying to tell me that at the end of his life, he just goes up to God and says, oh, I'm sorry, forgive me. And God says, well, I I guess I have to. I mean, he asked me to forgive him. And God's some big softy in the sky who just, you know, well, he has to forgive and aren't really any standards before God and doesn't really matter how you live. And, you know, it's just all because of grace. And so I guess it's just that cheap and that easy. Well, God knows us. And he knows our fears and our hesitations and our concerns about these kind of matters. And so he speaks to us very wonderfully about this in this passage. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through flesh love, but excuse me, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Look at how it begins there in verse 13. Paul's making the point that he's made before, and he's emphasizing it over and over again, that the Christian life is a life of liberty. I mean, Jesus came to set the captives free, not to keep them in bondage or to put them in bondage all over again. He says, you've been called to liberty. That's the calling of the Christian life. We're supposed to be free, liberated people. Now, I suppose it's worth asking if people see us as people of freedom and liberty. If you were to take an opinion survey, send somebody out with a clipboard, and just ask people in the street, when you think of a Christian, what words come to mind? I don't think free or liberated would probably come to most people's minds. Isn't that sad? That's how it should be. Believers should have this sense of freedom and liberation in their life, and it should just sort of or ooze out of them. People should be able to see it. That we have this great acceptance issue with God settled. We know where we stand with God both for eternity and right now. And that's a settled issue because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And people should be able to look at his sense, this excitement, this, this embracing of life, this, this joy that we have because God has done so much for us in Jesus. And so many of us seem to lack that. We have this liberty. It's our calling. Look at it, verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. That's our standing. That's our place. Now, again, when we stress this, and when we remember how Paul has stressed it all through this letter, we sort of take a breath and say, 
Oh yeah, but somebody's going to go out and abuse that liberty. They're going to go out there with this thinking and say, well, you know, I, I love to sin. God loves to forgive, so that's a good arrangement, right? I'll do what I love to do. God will do what he loves to do, and everybody will get along fine. Again, they feel that God must be some spineless God who every time we just sin and do as we please, and then, oh, please forgive me, God will just do it. And that's the end of the story. So Paul warns against it. Look at it here, verse 13. He says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I want you to understand something. Paul is not writing to the man on the street, so to speak. Paul is not writing to the the world audience as a whole. He's writing to believers. He's writing to people who have given their life to Jesus Christ. We see that, first of all, because he says in verse 13 in the beginning, for you brethren, these are brethren. These are people, as Paul said earlier in the letter to the Galatians, in chapter 3, verse 26, People who are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And that's faith in Christ Jesus. Not just believing that Jesus lived and walked this earth, but their life is lived with a trust, with a reliance, with a clinging to Jesus. These are people who are in the family of God. Now, to these people who have been called to liberty, they've been set free, he challenges them, now, what are you going to do with that liberty? Jesus Christ has set you free What will you do with the liberty that he's given you? He says, let me tell you what not to do. Verse 13, do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. That option, that danger is open to us. We can take the glorious freedom that Jesus has given us, spin it, and use it as a way to please ourselves at the expense of others. Or to please ourselves at the expense of obedience to God. God says, I've set you free. You have liberty. Great, now I'm going to run out and use this liberty to do whatever I want to do. That's not liberty. Many people think that liberty or freedom means the right to sin. Or the the privilege to do whatever evil my heart wants to do. That's not liberty at all. Do you know what we do with people in our society who can't control their evil impulses? Who can't control themselves and not do every evil thing that comes into their heart? We lock them up. They're unsafe because they commit crimes against other people. You've felt it at times, haven't you? I should just punch that person in the nose. There you are. You know, you've been trolling all through the parking lot for that right spot. And suddenly the car pulls out, and man, this is a good spot, isn't it? You're like, oh, thank you, God, yes. And then as the car pulls out, they're kind of blocking you from getting into the spot. And what do you see? That little sports car whip around the corner and go right in there. Now, if you did what your evil heart wants you to do in that situation... They'd lock you up in jail, wouldn't they? That's not liberty to do whatever your evil heart wants to do. That's not liberty to go and to follow every impulse, every desire that we have in our hearts. No. 
Liberty is the spirit-given desire and the spirit-given ability to do what we should do before God. We have that liberty. We have that gift from God. So he says, do not use the liberty that God has given you as a platform, as an occasion, as a launching pad for sin. No, instead, look at it there, verse 13. But through love, serve one another. This is the antidote for using liberty as an occasion for the flesh. You see, the flesh expects other people to conform to us. It doesn't care that much about other people. But when we, through love, serve one another, you conquer the flesh. Isn't that great? You see, you've been trying to conquer the flesh through vows and resolutions and, and gritting your teeth and, and bearing it the best you can and saying, I won't do it, I won't, I won't think about that, I won't think about it. And the more you say, I won't think about it, you think about it all the more. The more you vow, you won't do it. The more you're tempted to do it all the more. How does Paul say to deal with the flesh? I love this. Look at it here in verse 13. Through love, serve one another. You're struggling with something in the flesh? Okay, go out and through love, go serve somebody. You know what that does? It gets your eyes off yourself, first of all, doesn't it? Isn't that a beautiful, healthy, healing thing to do? Just to get your eyes off yourself. How depressing it is to look at yourself all the time. Get your eyes off yourself. You have better things to look at than yourself. Look at serving somebody else through love. Serve one another. It's a beautiful thing. It's not through an obsessive, contemplative attitude of navel-gazing that we overcome the flesh. No. It's getting out and serving other people. That's how we do it. You know, this is great. This is exactly the pattern that was set by Jesus, isn't it? He had more liberty than anybody who ever walked this earth. Think about it. Jesus had liberty. Even the the, the forces of nature didn't confine him. Walk on the water, no problem. Feed 5,000 people out of loaves of fishes, no problem. Friends, Jesus could fly if he wanted to. He had complete liberty. So what did he use it for? He used it to serve others. Isn't that beautiful? That's the pattern set by Jesus. And in this, when we do this, we truly keep the law. I think this is interesting how Paul puts it there in verse 14. He says, for all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's as if Paul's saying, hey, you guys want to be legalists? You want to keep the law? Okay, here's the law that you keep. Now the Jewish rabbis of Paul's day went through and very carefully counted all through the law of Moses, the books through Genesis, through Deuteronomy, and they counted 613 commandments that a person had to keep if they wanted to get to heaven. Paul says, forget the 613, here's one. I'll sum them all up in one. Verse 14, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that beautiful? You want to keep the law? Here it is. Go out and love somebody as you love yourself. Now, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? I think this idea has been sort of twisted into the idea of setting self-love as the foundation for a healthy human personality. Really, that misses the point. I mean, God doesn't want us to to hate ourselves. He wants us to have an accurate self-image, an accurate self-understanding according to the Scriptures. But that's not the idea that that Paul is talking about here. Let, Let me express it to you simply. As I... Stand in front of you here this morning. I look out and I see people who, well, you, you, you clothed yourself. You, you probably sheltered yourself last night. You, you fed yourself this morning. And uh, you took care to make sure you had transportation to get to church here. You, you did all those things for yourself here this morning. Well, 
Go out and do it for somebody else. You loved yourself that way today, right? It's that simple to go out and love somebody else that way. I like how Martin Luther said it. He said, if you want to know how you ought to love your neighbor, ask yourself how much you love yourself. If you were to get into trouble or danger, you'd be glad to have the love and help of all men. You do not need any book of instructions to teach you how to love your neighbor. All you have to do is look into your own heart and it will tell you how to love your neighbor as yourself. I'm in trouble. I want somebody to help me. All right, go find somebody who's in trouble and help them. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. I'm in need. I want somebody to meet my need. Go out and look for a need and meet it. This is a very challenging yet wonderful test of our spiritual state before God. How we treat other people. I think it's amazing how we want to make the measure of our spirituality other things. Oh, that person's so spiritual. Look at how they pray. And we listen to him pray and we hear all that. Wow, what an amazing man of God. Listen how he prays. Doesn't mean much if they get up from their prayer closet and go yell at their kids. Where's the love? Or listen to how that person preaches, or listen to their knowledge of the Bible, or or listen about this. Wow, they must really love, oh, how spiritual they are. No. Jesus said the measure is how we treat other people. That's the measure of your walk with God. That's the measure of your spirituality. It's not how much you don't do. It's not all the list of rules and regulations. How do you love? How do you treat other people? Somebody's wronged you? Forgive them. They're still your brother. They're still your, your sister or brother or Jesus Christ. They're still your friend or neighbor. You love them. They don't stop being your friend or neighbor because they offend you. No. No, friends. This is what it comes down to. Loving others as we love ourselves. Now, what if we don't do that? Look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Sounds like a pack of wild animals, doesn't it? Some churches are like that, aren't they? People sniping at each other, biting, devouring. It's like dogs nipping at each other, biting each other. And that's how the church can act when it uses its liberty as a platform to promote its own selfishness. No. No, Paul says don't do this. Instead of using liberty to to say this is my own agenda, everybody's got to conform to it. No, no. Then use your liberty to love one another in the name of Jesus. If you ever want to see some fireworks, just put two selfish people together. Selfish people will eventually be consumed by one another. You know, whenever you see people in this state, verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, you never see people snapping and biting and devouring one another, you know one thing for sure. They're not both walking in the Spirit. Now, Maybe they're both in the flesh. Maybe one is in the flesh, but for sure both of them aren't walking in the Spirit. No, it's simply put here. And that's why Paul transitions here to verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's beautiful. You see, the legalists among the Galatians were saying, 
Paul, we have to stress the law. We have to stress those 613 commandments. Otherwise, people won't care about obeying God anymore. They'll just go out and do whatever they want and then say, oh God, please forgive me. And then, oh God has to forgive me. And they'll go out and do whatever they want. Nobody will care about serving God. It'd be so much immorality, so much, so much uh, sin in the church. No, we gotta keep the law. That's the only way to keep people in line. Paul says, no, I'm gonna point you to a better way. You wanna please God? Then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Isn't that great? Instead of trying to live by the law, walk in the Spirit. This fear of the legalist that walking in the Spirit gives license to sin, no, it's just plain wrong. Legalism doesn't keep us holy. It just alters the way that we're unrighteous. No, if you want to not fulfill the lust of the flesh, then walk in the Spirit. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Well, you know, walking is a common metaphor. It's a picture for living your life, for for making progress along along the road of life. You know, it's funny, too, if you look at people as they walk, a lot of people have a distinctive walk. You can kind of tell through, you know, a hundred little different visual clues. There's something distinctive about them, how they walk. And there's something distinctive about your spiritual walk, isn't it? God can see it. Other people can see it. You can be identified by the way you walk. What can others tell by your walk? Can they see that it's a walk in the Spirit? They say, wow, this person is in touch with a spiritual reality. Their their life isn't just lived on the horizontal level, uh, thinking about only the things that they can touch and see and use and buy. No, they're living a life in the Spirit. You can tell that the Spirit of God is in them. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit, of course. First of all, it means that the Holy Spirit lives in you. He lives in you. He's alive in you. And it also means that when you walk in the Spirit, you're open and sensitive to the influence of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you live in a life of communication with the Spirit of God. And then it means to pattern your life after the influence of the Holy Spirit. There you are. You're walking in the Spirit. People can tell. People can see that there's a spiritual power, a spiritual influence in your life. Now, how is it that the Holy Spirit influences our life? Well, first, he reveals his will to us through the message of the Bible. You can tell the message of the Holy Spirit because it'll always come from and through and line up with the Bible all the time. Now, as we get into this later part of the chapter next week, where Paul talks about the works of the flesh... He says here, verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness. Then in verse 21, he says, Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. I mean, obviously, these are things that are not of God. And so if somebody comes along and says, You know, the Holy Spirit led me to get drunk. You know right then that they're off. The Holy Spirit led me to commit adultery. You know, they're just off right there. It's not lining up with the word of God, no. No, the Holy Spirit reveals his will to us through the message of the Bible. That's not the only way. He also influences us through other people who walk in the Spirit. Other people who walk in the Spirit can come and give you indication of the influence of the Holy Spirit. I trust that as you come here Sunday after Sunday, that in some way that the Holy Spirit influences your life through me. But he'll do it through other people as well. 
But I think third, we have to say that the Holy Spirit influences us through an inner direction that we become more and more sensitive to as we uh, mature in Jesus and we learn how to respond to it better. I mean, we're guided by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You sense his voice and you don't sense it perfectly. You're not always lined up exactly with what the Spirit is saying. And sometimes he wants to say more to you and you close your ears. Or sometimes you assume more than you should. But every Christian should know what it's like to have the Holy Spirit speaking to them, influencing them and, and directing them just in the inner man. This is something that God wants to develop in your life. If what I'm talking to you sounds like a foreign language... You need to call out to God and say, Lord, lead me deeper. I want to walk in the Spirit. I want to become deeper in these things. I want to grow. You know, when a person just starts to walk as a baby, their their steps are very short and they can't make much progress and they can't keep much balance. But as they keep doing pretty soon, they can walk wonderfully and then they can run and they can really make progress. Maybe you're just taking baby steps, so to speak, and walking in the Spirit. That's okay. Just keep going. Keep drawing deeper and deeper. Seek God about these things. Let Him fill your heart with this. And how can you tell? How can you tell if somebody's walking in the Spirit? They don't really have this special glow about them that looks differently. It's not a lot of things that people think in a theatrical kind of way. No. You know how you can tell if somebody's walking in the Spirit? They look like Jesus. They have the fruit of the Spirit that we'll talk about more next week. They have the fruit of the Spirit alive in their life, and they look like Jesus. You know, when the Holy Spirit works in our lives, He he works in us to guide us in the path and the nature of Jesus. You know, Jesus and the Holy Spirit aren't in competition one with another. It doesn't like one has one agenda and the other has another agenda. They're trying to bring about the same fruit, the same goal in our lives. This is walking in the Spirit. Friends, the great part about this, if you look at, again, in verse 16, he says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and what's the result? You shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There's no way anyone can fulfill the lust of the flesh as they walk in the Spirit. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to walk in the Spirit, and the Spirit lead you into fulfilling the lust of the flesh. The two simply don't go together. The Holy Spirit doesn't move us to gratify our fallen desires and passions, but He's in us to teach us about Jesus and to guide us in the path of Jesus. And this is the key to righteous living, walking in the Spirit, not living under the domination of the law. A lot of us just forget about walking in the Spirit, don't we? We get so caught up in the daily routine, the daily busyness, the the daily uh, working of things that you just forget about it. Sometimes I have to pray a prayer a lot, and I should pray it even more. That I walk in the Spirit and not just get caught up in the routine of the day. You know, sometimes when I am not really walking in the Spirit and, and some kind of interruption comes up, it, it really annoys me. It's like, oh, what, you know, what went on with this? I mean, this, I, I've got something to do and this is interrupting me. You know, the Holy Spirit has a purpose in that interruption. He has a reason in it. I just need to listen, I need to walk in the Spirit. And when you are walking in the Spirit, you see the glorious fruit of it there in verse 16, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, what is the lust of the flesh? He's not just talking about like sexual immorality, though that's certainly included. It also includes things like pride and hatred and covetousness and impatience. All these things are lusts of the flesh, desires of the flesh, that selfish, me-focused kind of living. 
simple solution, isn't it? You're struggling with the lust of the flesh. What's the solution? Walk in the Spirit. Seek after God. It's a positive solution. So often we think that the solution is a negative thing. Okay, I'm not going to walk in the flesh. I'm not going to walk in the flesh. I'm not going to walk in the flesh. The more you do that, the more you do that, the more you just seem to be focused on the things of the flesh. Instead, what is you do something positive? You say, I'm going to walk in the Spirit. Now, walking in the Spirit is the key, but it doesn't always come easily. That's why I love what Paul says in verse 17. You see, he recognizes this. Paul doesn't live some pie-in-the-sky Christian life. He says, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. We know that verse, don't we? We live that verse. There's a conflict in each and every one of us. There's the fleshly aspect of our life and of our character. Now, when he says flesh, he doesn't mean flesh and blood. It's not like there's something wrong or inherently evil with our flesh and blood bodies. He's talking about our mind, our will, and our emotions. These aspects of us that have been shaped by our fallen nature and shaped by this evil world that we live in and shaped by the temptations and the attacks of the devil himself. This fleshly aspect of our nature, it battles against the Spirit of God within us. We know that as we belong to Jesus Christ, we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. And we have this battle, right? The the flesh and the Spirit. People love to illustrate it in different ways, right? You see it in the cartoons, don't you? The little devil on one shoulder, the little angel on another shoulder. Sometimes it feels almost like that, doesn't it? The flesh battling against the Spirit. And this battle going on, Paul says, verse 17, they're contrary to one another. They don't get along at all. Now, the fact of this battle should wake us up. There's a battle going on in you, and and the flesh wants to dominate your life, and the spirit wants to dominate your life. There's a battle going on between the two. Which one is going to dominate your life? Is your life going to be more marked by your flesh, or is it going to be more marked by the spirit of God? Which one is going to run or dominate or, or dictate the course of your life? Well, You know what's the critical key in deciding which one? Your own choice, your own effort. See, I wish it wasn't like that sometimes. The way I kind of want it to happen is I want to lay down, you know, like on my bed in the morning and say, okay, God, just make me walk in the Spirit all day long today. Just kind of hit me over the head with it from heaven. He says, no, you need to choose that path every step of the way. You need to seek me. God doesn't just knock us over the head with it. You need to seek it and block out the things that hinder walking in the Spirit. That's the determining factor. And so we fight against the flesh, first of all, by by being able to say no to the flesh and its sinful desires. This is a very difficult thing in our modern world. Because our modern world, our present day culture, teaches us that we should never say no to our flesh. Whatever our flesh wants, it should get. If it feels good, do it. That's what's important. You give free reign to your flesh. Whatever you want, you should try to do it. And, And it's almost taught to us that that's the way to be a healthy person. Whatever you desire, whatever you want to do, you just go out and do it. And that's no I already used the example of of what we do with people who can't say no to their flesh. Eventually, we lock them up. 
Or you take another illustration, the illustration of a dog. You take a dog who's disobedient, always biting the neighbors, always barking all the time, running loose, ripping up everything in your house. The dog says, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Nobody's going to say no to me. I'll do whatever I please. What do you do with that dog? You chain it up. It's in the backyard on a three-foot chain. And here it is. Now, I'm free. Nobody can say no to me. And there it is on the chain. Then you have another dog, dog that's perfectly obedient. One of those guide dogs. At time to time, people brought in these guide dogs into our church. They're being trained to be guide dogs to the blind, and they need to go with them everywhere. And they, the dogs come into church and sit down. Dog sleeps right through the sermon. <laughs> Sometimes dogs are just like people. And you know what? That dog is not a problem at all. Why? Because it's obedient. That dog can say no. The dog might have the idea. I want to get up and run around. I want to get up and bark. The dog says no to that. Oh, that we would have the self-control of a guide dog. (laughs) That we could say no to our flesh this way, but sometimes you just have to do it, don't you? Some of us are so out of practice of saying no to ourselves when it comes to the desires of our flesh. Well, one preacher, and I, I heard, I thought it was a good idea. He said, you should just go and look in the mirror and look at that person in the mirror square in the eye and say, no, just so you get used to hearing it. Just so you get used to saying no to yourself. I tried it. I thought it did me some good. It might do you some good. Just get used to saying, I can't do every desire that comes in my heart. Nor should I. That's not the way God made me to live. So you have to be able to say no to the flesh and to its sinful desires. Secondly, you want to starve out the flesh. See, the problem for many of us is that we strengthen the flesh all the time by what we take in on the television or in the movies or in entertainment or in whatever other field we want to. We're always strengthening the flesh. We're always feeding the flesh. So the flesh is very strong, and in this battle between the flesh and the spirit, here you are, the, the flesh, he's all strong, he's, he's been fed well in the spirit, well, he's starving, he's anemic. You need to feed the, the spirit and starve the flesh. That's our third point, you need to strengthen yourself in the spirit of God and follow his influence. Friends, that's, that's the key to it all. Let me draw this illustration to talk about this battle and see if it clicks with you. Picture yourself as if you were a computer. And here you are, you know, you've got the box there for the computer, and, and inside of your computer box there are, are two hard drives, are two hard disks. And one of them is the spirit, and one of them is the flesh. And both of them have programming on them, both of them have information on them, one's the spirit, one's the flesh, and in any given situation, it's up to you to decide which drive you're going to access. Here you are, you're working at the computer, and you need to, well, which drive am I going to access? Am I going to access the spirit drive or the flesh drive? The choice is up to you. Walking in the spirit means you're using the programming and the files and the information and the access that's on the spirit drive there. Now, some people want to take that flesh drive and just kind of improve it. You know, they take off a few of the really bad files and maybe do a disk defragmenting thing and make it run a little better. But it's still the flesh drive. 
God never meant your system to run that way. He wants you to run off the drive of the Spirit of God. And if I could extend the illustration even more, the law has a role in this. The law is like an error message that pops up on your flesh drive. There you are, you're working along on the computer, and there you're accessing your flesh drive. All of a sudden, you got on the screen. It's an error message, some system failure. That's like the law telling you you're wrong. And so it doesn't fix the drive, and sometimes it makes the system crash, but it does tell you that something's wrong, and it points you in the right direction. Well, don't live your life on the flesh drive. Don't live your life on that error message. Instead, access the spirit drive. That has the programming that's going to make your, your whole system run better. And here's the best news about it. When you get to heaven, God's going to replace that flesh drive with the ultimate upgrade, with the, with the resurrection upgrade. And then your system will be completely set the way God wants it to be for all of eternity. Friends, the Spirit of God is in you. He's put that programming. He's put that drive in you. It's just a matter of us. Are we going to access it? I like how he concludes here in verse 18. He says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You see, the antidote to the flesh is not found in the law, but it's found in the Spirit. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You know why you're not under the law? If you're walking in the Spirit, you don't need to be. If my heart is filled with the Spirit of God, and if His heart, if His will is written in, in my inner man, and if I'm listening to it, and why you do it, do I need a law that will tell me, do not steal? No, I don't want to steal. Because I'm walking in the Spirit. I fulfill the will of God then through the inner influence of the Holy Spirit instead of the outer influence of the law of God. He's done something different in me. And friends, this is God's glorious answer to the fears people have about the abuse of grace. That's what people think. They think, well, you know, here you are. You you get somebody and you just forgive them and you tell them it's the free gift of grace and they're just going to abuse it. And God says, no, you know what I'm going to do in that person? I'm going to put my spirit in them when I save them. I'm going to put my spirit in them when when I forgive them. And there's going to be another principle operating in their life. And that principle will lead them into the way of righteousness. Do you have that programming in you? Has God put that spirit drive in you? then listen to it. He's put it in you, just listen to it. That's the key, that's the secret. When God forgives us, it isn't just forgiveness. He changes us. He puts something in us that we didn't have before, a principle that loves God and longs for righteousness, a new man that's put within us. And this inner influence is far more effective in us than the outer influence. The spirit within who's a person working in you and with you, that person is far more effective in leading you in righteousness than the law. We have a a vehicle code in California, don't we? And when you get a ticket, the officer always cites the vehicle code section that you violated because that's the law. There it is, the vehicle code. Let's say you go down to a store and buy a hundred copies of the vehicle code and, and put them in your room and keep 50 copies in your car. Is that going to keep you from breaking the traffic laws? No way. Doesn't matter. You can have all the copies. You can memorize the vehicle code. What's going to work better? Having 50 copies of the vehicle code in your car 
or seeing that policeman in your rearview mirror? What's going to make you a better driver? Well, the person right there, that's going to make you a better driver. Friends, the Spirit of God is here and He's in you and He says, listen to me, walk in me, walk in my road, and I'll lead you into the path of righteousness. See, see, we don't have to worry about a cheap gospel. If God's forgiven you, He's put the Spirit within you. And I trust that if you're really resisting the Spirit, He's convicting you. You know that you need to change. You know that your life is miserable enough to where you need to get it right with God and walk in the Spirit instead of resisting Him. Once He's put that programming in us, it doesn't feel right to walk in the flesh anymore. It might feel good, but it doesn't feel right. And God wants us to set it in the right place again. Friends, for some of you this morning, it's going to be a a revolutionary change for you. Because your eyes are opened in a new way to walking in the Spirit that you never knew before. God has a whole new country in front of you. You're about to go deeper and deeper in the greatest adventure in your life, and that's living your life walking in the Spirit instead of bound by just what we see on this earth. Let's pray and ask God to make this kind of change, this kind of influence in our life.